0: Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as professor of law at NYU and senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the Obamacare decision. Uh, and Richard, we're recording a special episode today. This is June 25th, and the Supreme Court has just handed down its verdict in King v. Burwell, the case regarding whether the federal government could provide health care subsidies to consumers and states if they're reliant on federal health care exchanges when the text of the law seemed to suggest that a state had to set up the exchange in order for the subsidies to be authorized. And the court ruled six to three. With the four liberal justices, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kennedy in the majority, that those subsidies were permissible. What do you make of the decision?
1: Well, I mean, I make up the decision that I was very surprised at the outcome a year ago, but much less surprised at the outcome today. And let me see if I can explain to you why. When uh, this thing first gets up, the program is not in full tilt. Uh, It's quite clear in 2012 there are lots of difficulties on the enrollment side. And generally speaking, if you could stop a juggernaut before it starts, you're not going to dislocate lots of people. Um, But it takes time for these cases to come along, and it's now, you know, three years after the original Obamacare decision, and they're just a very large set of reliance interests that are on it. Um, Everybody here likes to talk about the fact that there are individuals who will be thrown out to sea, Uh, but you have to remember in terms of the sort of logic of this case, it's also the companies that supply these services would be tossed out to sea. It's no surprise when you look at the stock market today, uh, the folks who are dependent upon Greece being stable, well, they go down, but the people who are in the healthcare business, their stocks start to surge. Uh, So It turns out they're just huge national constituencies in favor of this thing going forward. And once that happens, you then start to see a change in sentiment. A Supreme Court will look at ways not to disrupt current expectations, even if it means taking judicial somersaults. And there is always a Ongoing tension in the law between those people who say, you know, you guys have made your bed, you live in it, and if it's a stupid statute, let Congress change it. That's the Scalia dissent, it's a beautiful dissent by. The way. And then on the other side, there are folks who are saying, you know, we know how to make meatloaf out of grapes if that's what it takes in (laughs) order to keep one of these things going, uh, because what we must do is to make sure that there's no disruption in continuous services. Just as Roberts fancies himself as an institutionalist, so it was the same accommodationist. Sentiment that allowed him to support Obamacare to begin with led him in this direction, and he brought along Justice Kennedy with him, who, again, I think feels exactly the same way. Uh, so that what you do is you have this six to three opinion, and then textually it becomes a different problem, which we could talk about later. But in terms of this geopolitics of these things, everybody dreaded the possibility Uh, that the Scalia position would win most notably the Republicans in Congress because they don't have a plan B Uh, they have to be more accurate it, they have plans B through Z each of which presents you know has support of 2% of the voting population so there would have been chaos and they are now relieved of that political burden and if it comes to the question of whether or not you cut back or modify uh, the statute um, if they get the presidency there will be big changes that will be surely made some through regulation and some through um, legislation, but it would be done in a much more orderly fashion.
0: Well, to that point, if you read the majority opinion, it's a very yeah. consequentialist argument. I mean, Chief Justice Roberts spends a lot of time talking about the consequences if the subsidies go away, the death spiral in insurance markets. Mm-hmm. and He basically says, look, you, you have to put this in the broader context of the law, and yeah, they were sloppy in drafting parts of it, but look, they wanted health care more accessible mm-hmm. and more affordable, and interpreting this part of the law to exclude the federal exchanges would – would undercut that so that's by by extension that's not what it means as a general matter richard What do you make of that style of judging? How much does a good judge have to factor in the consequences and the broader context of the law as opposed to, or when opposed to, the plain language in front of him?
1: Well, this is a battle that's been going on since, you know, at least the time of Lord Cook and Ellesmere back in the early part of the 17th century. And, you know, there's one opinion which says that you look at the plain meaning of the statute and you ignore the social consequences, and another which says that what you adopt is something known as the mischief rule, which means that you read a statute in a way which is designed to counter a particular mischief that you've managed to observe. And that was the approach that Justice Roberts took. Now, it's a little bit disingenuous in this case. You noted that he started to talk about the mandate on the one hand, forcing these people in and the subsidies on the other. What you have to do is to understand what the relative portions of this thing are. The mandate essentially is in dissuetude um, from the beginning of time. Uh, but the subsidy portion goes loud and strong. So essentially, what happens is if you read Justice Roberts' opinion, it says the problem about markets is they work extremely well and they prevent cross subsidies. And the great virtue about government is that it avoids cross subsidies by putting an enormous burden on the public at large. So if you're trying to figure out, you know, under 80% of the world, how much of these subsidies are going to be funded by the um, individual. Or mandate. It's a trivial portion of the whole statute. There are billions upon billions of dollars that come on the other part. So if you want to treat this thing as some kind of Newtonian device with perfect balance back and forth, it's a little bit disingenuous to attribute the way it will. You'll never get a death spiral if. You could always subsidize the people who need to get the money. Uh, The real question is what are its global consequences for the economy? And the long-term consequences of Obamacare are very dangerous. We've already seen massive consolidation in the healthcare provision industry because when you have monopoly regulators, it's easier to have monopoly firms in order to deal with them. Uh, It's also clear that every year you're going to have this huge uncertainty as people have to re-up for a set of policies um, whose value are not known. The turnover rate is going to be very, very high under these cases. Uh, there's nothing about this statute which is obviously sustainable. Um, and it turns out that the budgetary implications may become sufficiently serious that after a while, the size of the subsidies will be start to trim down. Um, you're not quite sure in the long run how things go. But politicians have a very different time frame. It's called six months. And that, of course, is the way in which Justice Roberts is thinking about it. His attitude is the other guys can sort it out later, and if we have to come to the rescue on the cavalry, uh, we'll do that later down the road. So I'm not surprised that um, he did that. Um, the argument that he was deferential only on constitutional issues, which led people to think the other way, is, I think, wrong. I think he is basically a chief justice who really dislikes any judicial interpretation that leads to large discontinuities in the way in which the law operates. And so he did exactly what they did in the Chevron case. He manufactured an ambiguity which he would then allow the administration to resolve.
0: Richard, I could be wrong about this because it's difficult to characterize something that's so intangible. But I got a sense from a lot of people on the right after the first Obamacare ruling several years ago that while they loathed where Chief Justice Roberts ended up, They still weren't willing to write him off completely. There was a tendency to say, yeah, it's a terrible decision, but in in the broader sense, he still might be one of us. If you're broadly speaking on the right, do you now have to consider Chief Justice Roberts in roughly the same way as Justice Kennedy, as someone who maybe hasn't gone all, all the way over to the left but as someone who you are never going to be able to rely on as a vote in your direction?
1: To put it in terms, he's sort of a little bit more like Justice O'Connor than people thought at the time that he was put on. Uh, When you get to the next of the big cases, in many ways more important in terms of long-term administrative behavior about the disparate impact tests in the housing law, uh, Justice Roberts shifted over to the dissent and was willing to basically buck the decisions that every lower court had made on it. Justice Kennedy now writes that particular opinion. And so I do think it is correct to say that the Supreme Court has four liberals who essentially on all important issues are united as one. And then you have these two that could go one way or another, and you have a block of three on the conservative side. So uh, this is not by any sense a conservative court, if that's what one means. Uh, The left will take a lot of comfort in this because these are two very big victories, one for a program, but the other essentially is in many ways more important because it means that the undiminished fury of the civil rights establishment coming through the Obama administration will not be checked by judicial action. That's a little bit of an overstatement. I think, actually, because if you read that other opinion, uh, the government gets the chance to move forward, but my guess is that the subordinate clauses that you see in that case will uh, give defendants a lot of fighting room in the back. But. Uh- Certainly very different to say you're going to have to fight this disparate impact battle as opposed to the dissent in that case, which says the government can't even start down that road at all. So I think it, you're basically right. Um, what it stresses to me, as I've said elsewhere already, is that uh, if this is an administrative law decision, right, a lot of deference, uh, 2017 comes as a Republican president, uh, he can change that regulation um, in any way, shape, or form that he wants. And the Chevron deference will mean that if it's ambiguous, the administration wins. And certainly you can't say that it's so clear that state means federal and that they're the same thing, uh, that you have to uh, essentially overturn that regulation. So um, what this does in an odd sense is it means that the presidential power, given the ability of the president to take a really difficult statute and flip it over, is more important now given the Chevron rule um, than it would be if you had a much stronger and more consistent rule of law view on what's going on. And I have always put Chevron as virtually one of the worst opinions in the history of administrative law, because it did in that case, exactly what happens here. You have an internal provision separately understood, which is perfectly incoherent, excuse me, perfectly coherent and actually quite sensible. And then you get Justice Stevens saying, hey, you know, there's this other provision somewhere else which reads the different way. So what I'm going to do is find it ambiguous and then let the Reagan administration have its way on administrative grounds. And so uh, the more deference that you have on administrative grounds, the weaker the constraints that are imposed upon the president, and the more concerns that you have with genuine administrative flip flops. And if you're worried about that, then you have to have a lot more rule of law types concerns with respect to the inconstancy of the way in which a single textual statute, never amended, can be read by different administrations.
0: Justice Scalia's dissent in this case is um, characteristically. Caustic, Uh, But there's a passage earlier in there. He's arguing that under normal rules of interpretation, this isn't a close case. And then he says – I'm quoting him here. But normal rules of interpretation seem always to yield to the overriding principle of the present court. The Affordable Care Act must be saved. That's a pretty damning allegation. He's basically saying the majority is indulging – special pleading, that they're ignoring the responsibility of their station for essentially political purposes. Would you go as far as Scalia does there?
1: Well, I think it's uh, not an incredible situation. If you actually look at the two textual arguments on the ambiguities, there's some stuff on Chief Justice Roberts side. certain provisions having to do with the provision credits through federal exchanges um, don't make sense if there are no subsidies that are going to be provided. Uh, but set against that, Justice Scalia goes through place after place where they either use the term exchange without qualification or exchange established by the state with the qualification. And he says, you know, it just cannot be that the two things mean the same. Um, one might also add that in terms of the legislative history, uh, they wanted it that way at the beginning, because they thought they could then dragoon the states into setting up the exchanges. So now what happens is you get yourself a free ride. You first hold this over as a club on these guys, and they bluff, and they said, we never meant it at all. What this means, by the way, going to the future, is that anytime you get a statute, you cannot vote on the statute if you're for it or against it. You have to vote on the statute, taking into account the least favorable interpretation to your side that could come through an administrative deference. And that means I vote against every statute which expands government powers, because the deference issue will be so powerful that it will be beyond that. I and mean, you go to the Endangered Species Act, you start looking at Title IX and at Title Seven and uh, all of the other titles. In every single case, deference has always led to an expansion of Administrative authority, which is very difficult to rein back in, and no matter how clear the textual language, that has been difficult. so it changes the political and intellectual dynamic completely as far as I'm concerned. Um, you have to be essentially a standard rejectionist because the discretion issue is always there. You pass a statute without Chevron, and then the moment it runs into rough waters, Chevron comes to the rescue. Uh, the doctrine is of such an enormous transformative nature, not only of statutory interpretation but of the distribution of powers across the different branches of government. It means that congress is very much deflated, the executive is very much strengthened.
0: So final question that I'll put to you. When we get some distance from this, let's say arbitrarily 50 years down the line, how do you think historians are going to remember the way that the Supreme Court conducted itself on the Obamacare
1: cases? Well, I mean, we already have a laboratory test on that. Go back and see what happened during the New Deal. There was exactly the same kind of issues with past precedents and with constitutional text. And it was another republic. Uh, Chief Justice then, Charles Evans Hughes, always thought to be a great man, and indeed he was in many, many ways, and he had a flip which was every bit as dramatic and probably a thousand times more important, and what happens is roughly this, the people who basically liked the decision back in 1937, the progressives, uh, 80 years later, like the decision. The people who didn't like it then, you know, the conservatives, they still don't like it. What happens is time doesn't seem to change opinions on this. Well, people say, but look, see what the New Deal has done that just simply puts the arena into a different area. But folks like myself, what the New Deal did was create a bunch of cartels and labor cartels of one kind or another. A disastrous consequences. But if you thought that these cartels and these agricultural organizations were wonderful back in 1935, you still think that they're wonderful today. So I don't think history is going to change this all that much. I mean, I do think that it's possible that there'll be some careening to disaster under Obamacare, but the United States Republic is not quite yet a suicide pact. And when things really go bad, like with the catastrophic health care insurance initiatives of the late 80s, they get repealed and changed. Um, In an odd sense, I think this will actually help the Republicans in the campaign because I think, in effect, every year that you have to undergo individual renewals through the health care program, it introduces a kind of an uncertainty in the eyes of everybody on all sides of these issues and the republicans will be able to benefit politically from the general unease that starts to happen if the program stabilizes and it might depending upon what goes on i think that this will then be an advantage to the defendants so rather to the democrats so it's a kind of an iffy type situation what it does in effect is it makes the political landscape more complicated and as i've said it makes the stakes of presidential elections even greater than they ought to be
0: All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For The Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of The Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.